Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Scripture reading this morning is again going to be uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. If you are using one of the blue uh, pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 1005. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. This is the very word of God. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciences of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, made not with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father, we come before you now humbly asking that you would remember your promise that your word will not return to you void. But Father, we ask that you would cause it to bear much fruit in us and among us this morning. Father, may we be sanctified by the truth and may we be conformed to it all to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we looked at the bulk of this passage. This morning, our focus will be on the very last phrase of verse 14. Last Sunday, we learned that it was good and gracious of God to replace the old covenant with a new covenant even though replacing it meant rendering the old covenant obsolete. It was good for him to do so. It was gracious of him to do so because that old covenant was imperfect. 
It was incomplete. It was meant to be provisional. Yes, the Old Covenant had detailed regulations for worship, and and yes, it had a glorious sanctuary. But as the author points out in verse 8, more than anything, the Old Covenant showed us that the way into God's presence was not yet opened. The Old Covenant kindled in His people a desire for restored relationship with the living God. It did this by by placing the the tent of God, the the sanctuary of God, the very throne room of God. It, It placed that holy place right in the middle of the camp so that the people knew that God was with them, that He was their God. But even as it kindled this desire for a renewed relationship, at the very same time, it kept reminding God's people that they could not yet have the thing that they desired. That they were still separated from that restored relationship. We, we see this in verse 7 when the author says that only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. And he but once a year and only with freshly shed blood. And therefore, the covenant constantly reminded the people that the way was not yet open. And that is why it was good and gracious for God to establish a new covenant. Because the new covenant was far better. That's what we've been seeing over the course of the last few Sundays. That that under this new covenant, Christ enters not into the earthly sanctuary, but into the heavenly sanctuary. He comes to the true tent, not not a tent made with hands, not a tent of this creation, but into the actual throne room of God, of which the the earthly tabernacle was merely a, a shadow, a copy. Christ enters into the true throne room of God, and there He offers not the blood of bulls and goats, but His own precious blood, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And he does this not repeatedly, day after day, year after year, but he does this once and for all time, so that our consciences may be truly and perfectly purified from dead works, not temporarily, but eternally, world without end. And he does all of this so that we may be invited in to the very presence of God, so that we might gather in the sanctuary, so that we might have peace with the living God. That is what the new covenant is all about. It is a good and gracious gift of our Heavenly Father because it is under the new covenant that our consciences may be truly cleansed and that we, even as we heard in the assurance of pardon this morning, that we might forever have true and lasting peace with God. Under the new covenant, we have a restored relationship with our King. And it is that relationship that I want us to focus on this morning. This morning, I want us to ask, I want us to consider, what does a restored relationship with God look like? And I want to suggest to you that the author tells us in the very last phrase of verse 14. Notice again what he says. He says, the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifies our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. That's the key phrase. We have been purified for a purpose. We have been purified. We have been redeemed. We have been justified. We have been reconciled to God. The New Testament uses all sorts of language to to describe what has taken place for us through Christ's sacrifice. We have been purified for a purpose. We have been purified to serve the living God. And it's not just here that we learn that. We, We see this throughout the New Testament. Again and again and again, we see that there is a purpose in our redemption. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says clearly to the Corinthians, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And there's implications to that. It means that they must now glorify God with their body. Everything they do in the body, which, if you think about it, is everything they do. Everything they do in the body is to be done to the glory of God. And Paul isn't saying that merely to the Corinthians. It's how he he describes himself. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes himself as Paul, a servant, or maybe better, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, he is a slave with a particular commission. He is one who has been set apart to be an apostle, a a minister of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. But he sees himself, like all believers, as a slave, as a servant of his king. Even Jesus himself used this sort of language when he, when he says in, in Matthew chapter 11 that we must take his yoke upon us. Yes, he's, he's offering us rest. We'll, we'll see that. We'll, we'll come back to that. But don't miss the fact that, that that rest comes in the form of a yoke. We are to bow to him. We are to submit to him. As he says elsewhere, we are to deny ourselves and follow him. Those who love him keep his commandments. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that we have been set free from sin that we might become the slaves of God. It's the point that the author is making here. We have been purified to serve the living God. And the question that I want you to ask yourself this morning is simply this. Do you hear that as good news? Is it good news that you've been purified to serve? The truth is, we don't naturally hear this as good news. In our sinful nature, we don't like the idea of serving. We don't like the idea of being at another's disposal. We don't like the idea of of being a a slave. As sinners, we want to be served. We want others to to respond to our needs. We want others to respond to to our wants. We don't want to give ourselves away in the, the service of others because we firmly believe that our good the good life which we crave, the, the happiness that our, that our heart desires, the, the satisfaction that we can't live without, we firmly believe that that is to be found in being served rather than serving. We believe blessed are the rich, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the lords and the masters, 
Blessed are those who have servants at their disposal. That is what we believe in our flesh. That is what we believe by nature. It's the mindset of sin. It's the lie of Satan. The lie that we believed at first and which we have clung to in our flesh ever since. And what the author wants you to see this morning, what I want you to see this morning, is that it is entirely wrong. I hope to show you this morning that it was good and gracious of God not only to put forth Christ that we might be purified, but that it was good and gracious of God to put forth Christ that we might be set free to be His slave. Because it is as a servant of the King that we will find life. Now to get there, we have to begin by by seeing that, that service is actually unavoidable. Service is is unavoidable for us because we are creatures. As as the old saying goes, you have to serve somebody. And we have to serve somebody because we are created beings. As created beings, we are, let's face it, weak. We are dependent. We are finite. We, We simply cannot be our own masters. We are subject to that which gives us and and sustains life. I actually saw this illustrated this week in a story coming out of Seattle. Maybe you saw the same story. The, The headline read, Seattle Public Schools Believe Math is Oppressive. Now, let me be clear. They don't mean that math classes are oppressive. They don't mean math homework is oppressive. They don't mean that some math teachers are oppressive. They mean math itself. The very idea that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Math with its clear-cut black and white view of right and wrong answers. That is oppressive. And therefore, those who make policy for public schools in Seattle have actually issued a mandate that math teachers must take steps to mitigate the oppression of math in their classrooms. And I know that sounds like lunacy, (laughs) and and I know we we want to snicker, but before you roll your eyes and throw up your hands in disgust, I, I want you to understand that in some sense they're right. Math is oppressive. Yes, their understanding is deeply flawed, and yes, their, their, under, their response is entirely wrong, but math, like all truth, is oppressive. Math doesn't care how hard you tried or how sincerely you sought the right answer. It only cares whether you actually arrived at the right answer. If you did your figures wrong, the bridge will collapse. If you got the calculations wrong, the building will fall down. Or as we saw in the movie Hidden Figures, you won't land on the moon. There was a scene in that movie where where John Glenn wants to make sure that Katherine Johnson had done the math. He didn't trust anyone else. And he said, if she's done the math and if she tells me that the the calculations work out, then I'm going to go. But if she doesn't sign off, I'm not getting in that rocket. Why? Because he knows the math matters. He knows math is unforgiving. He knows math is oppressive. 
It is oppressive because it forces everyone to submit. Those who don't submit, those who rebel against math, suffer. So you children might not like math homework. You might not like the the responsibility of working through 30 problems, but the fact of the matter is that math is an unforgiving master. And I believe this demonstrates something about what it means to be a creature. Because it's not just math that we have to submit to. It is all truth that we have to submit to. We have to submit to the world as God created us. We we must humble ourselves and bow to truth. We must obey truth. We must follow truth. We simply do not have the capacity to be our own masters because we are creatures, because we are finite. But even if you grant that point, Right, even if you're with me up to here, and you say, okay, I understand, math's oppressive. I understand truth is, is unforgiving. We have to bow to truth. But why does that mean that I have to bow to God or to, to some other master? Can't we submit to truth without submitting to a person? Well, in a sense, that's a fair question. Bowing to the truth does not necessarily mean bowing to a person. But it does for us. Again, because we are creatures, because we are finite. You can only bow to the truth without bowing to a person if you have access to the truth yourself. And we don't, at least not comprehensively. We have access to parts of the truth. That's that's actually part of the wonder of our design as as creatures made in the image of God. Think about it. God has has created you with with senses that can access the truth of the universe that you live in. That is in itself amazing. God has has given us the capacity to access the truth, to, to see the truth, to know something of the truth. But because we are limited our comprehension of the truth is always limited. And therefore, we may only fully submit to the truth by submitting to one who knows the truth completely. And that's not us. In fact, that is no creature. That is no man. If we are going to live in accord with the whole truth, then we need a master who knows the whole truth. In a sense, this is what the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil was was all about at the very beginning. Why did God give them this one tree of which they could not eat? He gave them this one tree as a test. Will you lean on your own understanding or will you in all your ways acknowledge me? Will you acknowledge my word as truth. Or you do what seems right in your own eyes. You see, Adam and Eve, even before the fall, had limited access to the truth. Their, their, their knowledge was not comprehensive. Their knowledge was, was not perfect. And therefore, they needed God's revelation even before the fall that they might live Lives of of true and full flourishing. They might live the lives for which they were created. And so, if we are going to, to live in accord with the truth, 
We need that truth to be revealed to us by one who knows it. We can never simply lean on our own understanding. Now I know for some, that means that that if, if we can't be our own masters, then we can never truly be happy. To be happy is to be free. To be happy is to to do what is right in our own eyes. To be happy is, is to live independent lives. And if we can't be free, if we can't be independent, if we can't be our own masters, then then we have no hope of of happiness. Such is the thinking of the world. Such is the thinking of the old man. But the Scripture points us in an entirely different direction. The Scripture says if you have to serve somebody, if you can't live free, and that's simply what it means to be a child of God. Because... It is as children of God, it is as those who submit to their Heavenly Father, as those who serve Him, that we find the happiness for which we were created. By God's design, the good life is to be found in service to Him. We were created to find our happiness in service to the right Master, and He is the right Master. That's the the significance of, of saying that we have been set free to serve the living God. It's not just that we've been set free to serve. Not all service is good. Not all service is a blessing. Service to the wrong master can be hell on earth. That's what the Israelites learned in Egypt. To serve a cruel master is to be subjected to death. But the antidote to to that kind of slavery is not freedom. It is not freedom in the sense of of being our own king. But rather, the antidote to, to serving a cruel master is to be set free to serve a new master, a better master, the right master, the one true and living God who made us for himself. And we know that service to him is good, that service to his word is good, because in the beginning when all things were in accord with his word, they were good, even very good. And when God brought them out of Egypt, bringing them to a new land, it was a land flowing with milk and honey, where they would know his blessing and his provision so long as they lived in accord with his word. That is what... God is doing. He is setting us free. Not so that we can try again to be our own gods. That's what got us in trouble in the first place. But He is setting us free that we might serve Him because He knows it is in His service that we will find the life for which we were created. And so this morning, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what does it look like then to serve the living God? How do we serve Him? How do we devote our lives to His reign and to His rule? And I want to suggest to you this morning that serving the living God can be simply stated as living a life of love. In Exodus chapter 20, when the Lord brings the the people to Mount Sinai, He says to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before Me. 
He said, I have redeemed you and I've redeemed you for myself and I'm about to bring you into a brand new land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And in that land, you are to have no other gods before me. You are to serve me and me alone. And he then goes on to expound what that means in ten words, what we call the the Ten Commandments, the law. He gives them a law as a a picture of what it means to, to serve him. And in Romans 13, Paul tells us that that law is a blueprint for love. The one who fulfills the law walks in love. The one who loves fulfills the law. And so we can say that serving the living God means living a life of love. In our sinful nature, we we want to be loved and we want to be served We want others to to give their lives to our interests. But God says again and again that serving Him means giving our lives to the interests of others. We want to to grasp our privilege and our position and our our power. We want to, to bend others to our good. But serving the living God means bending our lives to the good of others. This is what Jesus did for us. Paul tells us in in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't grasp at His position. He didn't grasp at his, His privilege. He didn't use it for His advantage, but rather He humbled Himself, taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And now... We are to be like Him. We are to have the mind of Christ. We are to be conformed to His image so that we will no longer consider our comforts and our conveniences as things to be grasped and and used for our advantage, but rather we are to humble ourselves, taking the form of servants who give their lives away in the service of others. This is what the author of Hebrews says was Jesus in purpose. He gave Himself to make us like this. He, he gave Himself to purify us so that we might serve in this way. It's the same thing that, that Paul says in, in Titus 2, that, that Jesus came to redeem for Himself a people who are zealous for good works. Good works done in the service of others. We have been purified to serve. And so what does that mean for you in practice? Parents, it means bending your lives to instruct and discipline your children well. Parenting is not easy. Parenting is sacrificial. It will change the shape of your life. It will mean saying no to to certain things. And it's what God calls us to do because He says... If you will bend your life towards their good, you will be blessed. But it's not just within our families, it's also in our neighborhoods. We are to, to bend our lives towards the, the good of our neighbors. We are to, to bend our lives towards befriending the lonely and, and serving the marginalized. We're to do this in our neighbors. We're to to do this at at work when we we bend our lives to serve the common good of the community, even when it doesn't mean getting your boss's praise, or even when it means that, that, that 
You're going to be on the outside at, at work. We bend our lives towards serving the common good. We, we bend our lives towards pursuing justice and mercy in our, in our communities. We don't just add these things on the margins, but we allow our whole lives to be shaped by the desire to serve. It's what we have been saved for. This is what it looks like to serve the living God, giving yourself away in loving service to your neighbor. Allowing love to shape every area of your life. Not seeking to love on the margins, but seeking to love at the very center of your life. This is the life that we have been called to. This is the life that we have been purified for. And the challenge that we face this morning is hearing this as God's good and gracious gift. Because everything in our old man, everything in our sinful nature resists. Everything in the old man wants to, to hold this at arm's length. Everything in the old man says that, that if I do that, it's going to feel like dying. If I do that, I'll, I'll lose what little life I have. I'll lose what little joy. I'll lose what little happiness. And Jesus says, you're right. It does feel like dying. It feels like dying to yourself. It feels like putting to death the old man. But here's my promise. If you will lose your life for my sake, you will find it. So the challenge before us this morning is simply the challenge to believe. The challenge to take Jesus at His word. To understand that it is because He loves us that He has purified us to serve. To understand that it is His gift of grace that makes us His slave. So if that doesn't sound like good news to you this morning, then go to Him humbly, praying the prayer that, that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1. Lord, open the eyes of my heart that I might see You that I might know and understand your love for me in all of its enormous wet breadth, that I might understand the hope that is mine in the gospel, that I might understand the power that is at work in those who believe, that I might understand that this life that you have called me to is life indeed. Paul asks simply, when you were free in regard to righteousness, when you were free to do whatever you wanted, what fruit were you getting from the things that you were then able to do. Were those things satisfying? Did those things give you the life you craved? He said, no. The end of those things is death. But the free gift of God to those who serve Him, the free gift of God to those who, who lay down their life on the altar as a burnt offering, the free gift of God to those who call Him Lord, is eternal life. True life. Abundant life. The life that is to be found only in service to Him. And because He calls us to such a life, and because He shed His blood to purify us for such a life, 
That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we come before you now, humbly asking that you would give us faith to believe your promise. That you would give us faith to take you at your word. That you would give us faith to know and to believe that we have been purified to serve the living God. And there is no greater gift that you could have given. Father, open our eyes to the wonders of this truth and give us grace to believe it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.